easy passwords like password 1234, multiple people with the same password, inactive user accounts not closed, one-factor authentication. Sounds like the average agency cybersecurity posture of, say, 1989. But no, that's the Interior Department right now. We get the details from Interior Inspector General Mark Lee Greenblatt. Mr. Greenblatt, good to have you back. Thank you for having me on again. I appreciate your highlighting our work. And in this day and age when one might have presumed the password situation was cleaned up by agencies, what prompted you to look at Interior Department password policies and practices? Well, we have a robust IT audit team that has developed a strong track record of probing the Department of the Interior's infrastructure with respect to IT. And this particular review started with our efforts a couple of years ago to look at Wi-Fi networks and the ease with which we were able to crack into passwords related to the Wi-Fi networks in the department led us to think, hey, maybe there's a bigger problem with passwords here. And so we developed this mechanism to explore the password complexity requirements inside the department. And just briefly, to the extent that you can describe the methodology, how did you crack passwords and find out that people were using, in a widespread manner, pretty weak passwords? Well, this is a fascinating question, and I love that our team was able to come up with this, but this is what is really happening out in the world with malicious actors. So they replicated what hackers are trying to do. For less than $15,000, they put together a system that was specifically designed to crack password hashes. So what happens is when you and I put in a password, the system that we use tracks that as a 30 or more digit number. It's not the actual text that you and I put in. And our system was able to, they used commonly used words, they used dictionaries of different languages, they used U.S. government terminology, and put this all into this system, pop culture references as well. And then they were able to crack the hashes using all of these different words and different combinations. And and the algorithms that they used were pretty remarkable. Wow. And just give us a survey of the top line results. Because there are individual issues and then there are enterprise issues from the way I look at it. That's exactly right. So first of all, we cracked more than 18,000 passwords for user accounts in the department. There are about 70,000 department employees. And so we cracked 21% or so of the department employees' passwords. There were 288 accounts that we cracked. Their password were for elevated privileges, which means administrators. These are folks who can go behind the scenes into the systems. Those are really sensitive passwords there, as well as 362 senior government employee accounts. Uh, So that's some of the top line figures. But, you know, some of the other stuff that we were talking about before and what you used in your intro, we found that one in 21 passwords used the word password. In fact, the number one password that we found was password-1234, and there were nearly 500 accounts with that. And then in the top four, you also had password-123, dollar sign, password-1234. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of accounts like that. We also had in the top 10, password-1234, exclamation point. Uh, You know, you get my drift here. So we're seeing a lot of those same types of, you know, reliance on easy things, but that's exactly what the malicious actors want. That's one of the problems that we're trying to identify with this report. We're speaking with Mark Lee Greenblatt, 
Inspector General of the Interior Department. And did you look at what their policy is for passwords? They must have a better policy than perhaps the widespread practice. Well, that was something that was disconcerting is that 99.99% of the passwords that we hacked were compliant with the policy. So that's one of the big problems here that we found was that the password complexity requirements are no longer adequate. And this is where we get to the bigger, more systemic issues that you were flagging earlier, Tom, that we need to make more robust policy requirements. For example, this reliance on passwords that are incredibly complicated, where you have these symbols and they're impossible to remember, those are outdated. And we need to modernize. And the new best practice out in the field right now is using pass phrases. So this is four words, random words, say, that are combined. And there's a much greater difficulty for a hacker to read your mind about four random words in your brain as opposed to password one, two, three, four. And so that's where the modern best practices are gravitating toward. And that's what we're trying to urge the department to move toward past phrases, not passwords. And then there's the issue of more than one factor authentication to begin with. That's exactly right. That was another big problem that we found with respect to the department's policies here. We found that 89% of the high-value assets, these are the sensitive data sets and sensitive computer systems, had not implemented what's called multi-factor authentication. And this is what you're talking about, Tom. So there are two kinds. There's single-factor authentication and multi-factor authentication. And so we are trying to move the department and the rest of the federal government towards MFA, multi-factor authentication. What that is, is using at least two factors to access computer system. And there are basically three big buckets. One is something that the user knows, which is like a password or a PIN number, something that the user has, like a PIV card or a token, and something that the user is, like a biometric measure, which is like fingerprints or retinal patterns. And so a multi-factor authentication would use two or more of those buckets. Right now, using just passwords, we're seeing now is just not sufficient to protect these systems. And there's even newer ways for the backup types of questions and challenges, because people can all put in, where were you born? Everyone can write in New York. But now a lot of agencies are using third-party data services that the individual is, whether they know it or not, is enrolled in. And therefore, if you were actually born in Podunk, the system knows that. So if you try to make your challenge question New York, it won't work. So it's kind of a living way of challenge questions. Certainly. That would add value if we can make these systems more complex and more robust because malicious actors are certainly dedicating more resources than we did. I mean, we put in $15,000, less than $15,000. There are other folks using much more sophisticated means, just as you're describing. And I imagine this might have been a triggering type of report to use a modern parlance for the Interior Department because there's a history there. I mean, within my memory of following the Interior Department, they have been under court-ordered data system shutdowns and internet disconnections at one time because of security practices. So what was the reaction? Well, we have a good, constructive, appropriate relationship with the department. They have taken this very seriously, along with our other reports. I am heartened. I had a specific conversation with the CIO, the chief information officer here, 
very healthy, very constructive conversation with him and very senior leaders here in the department. I think they are taking this very seriously, uh, and I'm gratified by that. Ultimately, we are trying to help the department be more robust, and I think this response is going to uh, hopefully effectuate that and make the computer systems more robust, more resilient against uh, hacking attacks. So really then they're it at this point, the CIO staff and the tech staff to establish a new password policy. And is that something, do you feel that they can promulgate quickly and then within a couple of weeks everybody has to have new passwords or you can't get your work done? Yeah, well, that's a question for them in terms of timing, but I expect that they will be uh, moving quickly. The bigger issue, frankly, I think is probably not so much the password, but implementing the multi-factor authentication. That could take time because we have some systems here that are older and that can't do that sort of thing very easily. Again, this is a question for the CIO and senior leadership, but I think you know their hearts and minds are in the right place trying to solve this system. But I don't want to speak for them in terms of their planning and, and how they're going to attack it. But my sense is, from my conversations with them, that they are moving, you know, hopefully moving in the right direction. I think that clicking sound I hear is a technology modernization fund application. <laughs> That's right. One way to get there <laughs> yeah, a little bit I quicker. And by the way, do you have the sense that this could be something government-wide? Absolutely. The Department of the Interior employees, I think, are very similar to other federal government employees in the sense of how they're using the passwords in their daily lives. I think they're no different from the rest of the federal government. And in fact, I would argue this is very similar to the rest of our society. And so I think this is tapping into a larger issue not only in the federal government, but in our society, we have to change the way we view passwords and shift away from these crazy concoctions that we have with the word password and these special characters, which are absolutely impossible to remember, and shift into pass phrases. That really is the societal shift that we need, and that includes the federal government as well, to answer your question. But I think it's actually much bigger than just the government itself. All right. Mark Lee Greenblatt is Inspector General of the Interior Department. As always, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much, Tom. Appreciate your support. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost, uh, Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics. I um, One of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from, from the NFL uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of, of people with intellectual disabilities and, and, and physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually, usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. 
And so I, I knew that I knew that work a bit, you know, they, they basically were in direct care. And, and I will say, you know, and I obviously will say about my, my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints, uh, but uh, the, the men and women that do take care of people with uh, profound disabilities are, are really, um, you know, we, we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they're they're really heroes, and um, so I was I was drawn when I I and I just saw that you know Special Olympics was looking for someone, and I thought well you know I'll take a look at it and see, see you know throw uh, send in my information, and lo and behold I I, I get hired, and um, I learn uh, every day almost something from especially from our athletes. Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington D.C. and you know, uh, Terrell, who, who works in, in our mailroom, who comes by with packages and deliveries. Uh, if you're having a day that's, you know, getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by, always happy, always enthused, uh, has, a, has a good story. Like, it can just turn a day around for you. And, and, and you think of, I, I, you know, so often when he'll walk away, I'll be like, you know, whatever was bothering me or whatever is, you know, stressing me out. And come on, you know, like look at look at Terrell. Like he, he he faces everything with optimism, and 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 I've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the United States and globally. You see people who have had everything stacked against them. You know, their parents when they were born were often told this is a tragedy, and you should you should you know send your this child away. Don't don't you know and, and kind of forget about them. Get, turn them over to the state or or wherever. And and you know that you know just kind of watch, watch your hands of it. Um, and 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 in in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and but they've still faced enormous challenges. You know, and but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming, and uh, and and you know, besting their times from, from their last competition. And they're so committed and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs. And, and, and I've seen so much perseverance and grit uh, from the athletes of Special Olympics that, uh, I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman, uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more. Uh, we get more than we give uh, working with Special Olympics. It, you know, we, and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do. But but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That that you know, it's a and it's so unique and it's so. Uh, joyful and and uh, I mean we work hard and you know we we're up against you know the things that nonprofits are up against and you know the you know the issues of the day but uh man you see it, it and 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 the inclusion and the at special olympics no one's excluded you know no, right. no one's excluded everyone yeah. is equal at special olympics it, and you know in a country that's quite divided on so many lines politically and uh, socially uh, economically race and uh, sexual orientation and whatnot, but you go to Special Olympics and everyone's involved, everyone's welcome, everyone's equal. And I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics and experienced the power of Special Olympics for themselves, 
I, I can't imagine that won't help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get, how can listeners get involved in Special Olympics? Ways to get involved? Uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials. Uh, and, and the thing that, that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that, that I mentioned earlier, um, where people, and, and it doesn't have to be, uh, it's not just school age, it's, it's uh, you know, we say nine to 99 or uh, year old uh, folks uh, that play on teams, uh, bowl together, golf together, play soccer, basketball together. Uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think, when you when you go back to the founding uh, of our organization, what Mrs. Tri- Mrs. Shriver was trying to do uh, was to, to uh, create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences. And that our athletes, man, are some of the grittiest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out at, you know, uh, specialolympics.org on, on our website. Uh, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where, what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we'll, uh, Talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.